Thank you, Jody, for sharing with us from God's Word this morning. And we pause now in a word of prayer uh, together to prepare our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word, that it is a lamp uh, unto our path. It is a light for our feet. And we thank you that you are the light of the world and that you give to us your light. And the light of Christ can never be hidden. It is brighter than the sun on a well-lit day, and we are thankful, Lord, that you warm us, Lord, uh, through your Son in our souls, in our spirits, and, Lord, that you provide for us in ways that we can't even provide for ourselves. You contain, Lord God, the mysteries of the universe, and yet you reveal yourself to us in personal and intimate ways, and so we thank you that we can know you as friend and Savior, and brother, and Lord of our lives. We ask this morning that you would challenge us through this message, and that we would carry, Lord, the spirit of the words that are shared here within our hearts all the week long, and that we would be made and formed and fashioned into the image of your children, being more and more like you. That's our desire. That's our goal. That's all we want to be is more like you, Jesus. And may this message, this simple message, help us to do that. We pray and ask these things now in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are um, talking about uh, making choices and decisions and how very, very important those choices and decisions are for us. And we know that life is full of choosing different options, considering uh, what we want at any given time or season of our lives. And sometimes we choose wisely and sometimes not so wisely. It reminds me of the uh, two brothers, one older and one younger. And the older brother uh, talked the younger brother into allowing the older brother to crack some eggs on his head. And the two of them were getting ready, you see, to boil eggs, uh, as children oftentimes do at this time of the year, in preparation uh, for Easter. And uh, the older one said to the younger one, if you let me break three eggs on your head, I'm going to give you a dollar. How does that sound? And the younger one's eyes grew very, very wide with the prospect of getting a dollar. Really, he said? A whole dollar? Promise? Promise. Okay. So the younger brother closed his eyes and held his hands to the side of his face as the older brother giggled and cracked open that first egg on his younger brother and the yolk began to run down his forehead and all over his face. And uh, the older brother then said, well, that's one. And now comes uh, number two. And uh, he cracked that egg and the and the same thing, and the, and the younger brother was standing there saying, oh, this is so cool, this is incredible, and the, the younger boy braced himself for the cracking of the third egg, and then after about 10 seconds went by, the younger brother said, come on, what about the third egg? And the older brother then slyly said, are you kidding me? That would cost me a dollar, and I'm not going to do it, Yeah. Bill Hybels, who was the founding pastor of Willow Creek Community Church outside of Chicago, uh, once wrote in his book, 
You are who you are when no one else is looking. He writes these words. Every single day we make choices that show whether we are courageous or whether we are cowardly. We choose between the right thing and the convenient thing. Sticking to a conviction or craving in for the sake of comfort, greed, or approval. We choose either to take a careful, thought-out risk or to crawl into a shrinking shell of safety, security, and inactivity. We choose either to believe in God and trust in Him, even when we do not always understand His ways, or to second-guess Him and cower in the corners of doubt and fear. Well, as we hear what Hybels has to say, there's a sense of judgment that's involved on God's part and a sense of decision-making that's involved in ours. Jonathan uh, Whitfield, that uh, great preacher, he was preaching to coal miners uh, in England way back when, and he asked one man, well, what do you believe? And he said, well, I believe the same thing that the church believes. And then Whitfield said, well, what does the church believe? Well, said the man, they believe the same thing as me. And then kind of seeing that he was getting nowhere with this man, Whitfield said, and what is it that you both believe? And the man said, well, I, I suppose we both believe the same thing. As we approach Easter, it's all about our choices, choices that are either excuses for why we choose to believe or not to believe, or choices for how we come to make Him Lord. Now, belief, is it the empty tomb, a decisive line that is drawn in the sands of time by God Himself, or just a springtime fable filled with daffodils and chocolate Easter bunnies. Well, for a world that loves to wander in the weeds of deliberation and endless interrogation, there comes a time, you know, when process runs its course and conversations, they come to an end. There are no more in-betweens, no more via media or bargaining tables or time delays or negotiations, no more ambassadors or middlemen or the condoning of excuses, just raw, naked decision. That's the place that Easter brings us to. And so the parable of the rich fool, and um, let me also lift up that if, if someone is a rich fool, uh, the text implies that they're quite possibly also a lonely person, yeah? For someone who is rich and foolish is also very, very lonely. In Luke's Gospel, both of these ideas are captured of decision-making and of God's judgment. Now, the idea of decision-making, we get that. We understand that. The idea of God's judgment, however, is often resisted, if not rejected. It just doesn't fit in our so-called coexist world. Well, Dr. Luke, in his gospel, presents these ideas of decision-making and judgment to a non-Jewish audience, which proves that even though those who did not grow up learning the Ten Commandments or monotheism, they must still face a reckoning. A reckoning. 
God's judgment of the rich fool and Jesus' conversation with the man born blind, they beg the same two questions. That of misplaced priorities in the case of the rich fool and the question of what on earth will we say to God when God taps us on the shoulder and says to us, I that speak unto you am he, which was the experience of the man that was born blind. At stake here, you see, is the belief that God intends to reveal himself to everyone. Paul is pretty clear when he says to the Christians in Rome these words. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people, here it is, are without excuse. So Scripture allows no place for condoning our excuses for why we turn our backs on God. In part, this is what we have world religions for, you see. They are approaches to God, albeit deeply flawed, which ultimately fail to deliver on the promise of salvation. And Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 is quite explicit. Salvation exists in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven or on earth by which men and women ought to be saved. That is the name of Jesus. Now Hinduism picks up the idea of a world that is beyond ours, but it is a world governed and controlled by millions of gods some lesser and some greater. In Hinduism, there is 330 million gods. That's enough for every man, woman, and child in the United States, each to have a different god. Talk about choice. So you see, the Hindu faith is a little bit of a shell game, if you will. If you don't care for Brahma, that's okay. There is Vishnu. If you don't care for Vishnu, that's fine. There is Shiva, who is the destroyer. Don't like any of those? That's okay. There are 329,999,997 gods left to choose from for you. And while Hindu people are worthy of God's love, as all people are, their faith cannot be condoned or excused away as somehow being acceptable. Hindus, you see, have heard of Jesus, just as you and I have. And Buddhism, well, if we uh, reflect upon Buddhism for a moment, it is primarily a philosophy about life. Uh, Gautama Buddha never claimed to be God. He said, I am just the one, I, I point the way, which is in stark comparison to Jesus, our Savior, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, in Buddhism, one spends eternity on the wheel of reincarnation, trying to figure out life. It's a kind of a bit of a crapshoot in Buddhism, if you will. Sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you come back as a German shepherd and sometimes you come back as a Labradoodle, you know. It just kind of depends. 
And while the Buddhist people are worthy of God's love, as all people are, their faith cannot be condoned or excused away as somehow acceptable because Buddhists, as you see, my friends, have heard of Jesus, just as you and I am. And Christianity counterpunches against both Hinduism and Buddhism, saying, you know what? You've got one life, baby. This is it. Ain't no ongoing wheel of reincarnation going on for eternity while you try and figure it out and get it right. This is it. Islam, although monotheistic, is largely a Christianity wannabe kind of faith. If you study the history of Islam, especially the Ottoman Empire from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, you'll find several instances in Islam uh, where that faith has been profoundly jealous of the advances made in the Christian West. Now, Muhammad, its founder, knew all about Judaism and Christianity, but he just couldn't help himself when it came to satisfying his own sexual urges or waging ruthless military campaigns against his enemies. It's all there in the history of his life. So along comes this simple celibate carpenter from Galilee, who never lifts a finger or sword in defense of himself, preaching what is a very bothersome message. It bothered people in the first century, and it still bothers people in the 21st century, and it will continue to do so all throughout time. Bothersome? Why? Because he asks where our priorities lie in relation to God and in relation to our neighbors. Yes? And time is on God's side. He will find out where we stand in our choices and in our decision making. And along the way, he makes very little space for accepting our endless excuses as to why we do not love, why we turn our backs or why we give God one of these, you know, kind of the look. You know, you're not going to tell me, God. Now, the sin of the rich fool was that he swapped eternity out for the here and now. I'm going to build bigger barns. I've been successful. It's all about the now, yeah? And he's not alone. There are lots of people that do this every single day. We all excel at swapping God out for something. Go ahead and fill in the blank for whatever that might be. At the time, you know, he felt it was a, a, a pretty good idea, this, this rich fool, to build these bigger barns. But in the long run, it turned out to be a tragic mistake investing in the here and the now. That's why he's called a fool. And that's why when I look at the text, I call him the lonely fool. You know? Excuses, choices, and decisions are all connected, especially in the parable of the rich fool, where Jesus highlights how badly things can go when we end up making the wrong decisions and choices. What are the wrong choices? Anything that does not make us rich towards God. 
I think what Jesus is trying to convey in this parable, and we'll see this later on in John's Gospel, is that God is the source of our lives. Not hard work. Not ambition. Not the market. Not our intellectual capacities. Not our own resourcefulness. All of these things become convenient excuses and paltry substitutes for not choosing to live for God. Further, the parable of the rich fool is particularly dramatic because it is time dated. Now you all know what I mean when I say time dated. Every time you go to the grocery store and you pick up a product or item off the shelf, it's got a time stamp on it. Yeah, And the parable of the rich fool gives us a peek into oops, time's up. And this is the place that we will all come to. Anita Pallenberg, who was the lover of two of the Rolling Stones, Brian Jones and Keith Richards, uh, and she was an on-again, off-again, hardcore drug user in her life, and she eventually died of hepatitis C. She once said these words, Before you know it, it's 3 a.m. and you're 80 years old and you can't remember what it was like to have 20-year-old thoughts or a 10-year-old heart. Jesus says we ought to become like little children to have and keep intact that 10-year-old heart. You see, the sweep hand ticks its last second We breathe our last, and then it's over. But in Buddhism, you know, you get all the time that you want, all the do-overs that you need, which is very, very appealing, but not so in Christianity. The Christian faith is a once-and-done reality. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 declares, And it was appointed unto man once to die, and then after this, the judgment. Reverend Billy Graham, who died at his home in North Carolina on February the 21st, at the age of 99, was amongst the most influential religious leaders of the 20th century. And he said, Someday you will read that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it, he said. I shall be more alive than I am right now. I will have just changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Indeed, that is where Reverend Billy Graham is. So Pastor Rick Warren, the author of The Purpose Driven Life, he quotes C.S. Lewis as saying, There are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, all right, go ahead, have it your way. Have it your way. See how far you'll get with that. Warren goes on to say, tragically, many people will have to endure eternity without God because they choose to live without Him here on earth in the here and the now, just like the rich fool did. When you fully comprehend, Warren says, that there is more to life than the here and now, and you realize that this life is just a preparation for eternity, it's then that you're going to begin to live differently. Suddenly, many activities, goals, and even problems that seem so important to you 
right here, right now, appear trivial, petty, and unworthy of your attention. The closer you live to God, the smaller everything else appears. What this means is that Christianity enforces a too-late clause upon humanity. We find it in the parable of the ten virgins, in the invitation to the marriage feast, and the return of our Lord Jesus, who says, I'm coming like a thief in the night. No more consideration, no more deliberation. Whatever decisions you've made, they're going to be done, they're going to be sealed, and that's going to be, I'm going to return like a thief in the night, very unexpectedly. A poet, James Russell Lowell, put it like this. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the bloom or blight, parts the goats upon the left hand and the sheep upon the right, and the choice goes by forever twixt that darkness and that light. Eventually the door to eternal life closes, you know, and there is no going back. The idea that time has run out is not a popular one in today's give-me-more-options kind of culture. There was a um, local priest who was being honored uh, at his retirement dinner after 25 years of serving in his parish, and a leading politician and member of the congregation was chosen to make a presentation and, a, and to give a little speech at the dinner. However, the local politician was delayed, so... Uh, the priest decided to ad-lib ad and add a few of his words, own words, as they waited for the politician to arrive. And so the priest says, well, I got my first impression of this parish from the very first confession I heard here. And I thought that I had been assigned to a terrible place. The very first person who entered my confessional booth told me he had stolen a television set and when questioned by the police, was able to wangle his way out of it. He had also stolen money from his parents, embezzled from his employer, had an affair with his best friend's wife, and taken illicit drugs. And I'm telling you, I was absolutely appalled. But as the days went on, I learned that my people in the congregation in the parish were not like that. I had indeed come to a fine parish full of good, loving, kind, caring people. Just as the priest was finishing his talk, the politician arrived full of apologies for being late, and he immediately began to make his presentation and said, I'll never forget the first day our parish priest arrived. In fact, I had the honor of being the very first person to go to him for confession. Oops. Time catches up with us all. Over in John's Gospel, the storyline is familiar. It's about believing and being forgiven before time runs out and all is lost. When Jesus presents himself to the man born blind, it's a one-time deal. And Jesus is so compassionate because if you know the background of the text in, in John's Gospel, he'd been kicked out of the synagogue, which means he had been kicked out of the church. And Jesus circles back around and he finds this man and they have a conversation together. When Jesus presents himself to the man born blind, a one-time deal. And we find today that the same mechanism is still in play, that of making a choice for Jesus. 
Jesus came to the blind man, revealed himself, and asked him to make a choice for the Lord. It's the same choice that he has given to us all. With a man born blind from birth, we find no resistance, only a willingness to believe and embrace. How precious, how sweet. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, tell me so that I might believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one who is speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And let's not miss what John says. The man worshipped him. You don't worship other people. You only worship God. And that's what this man was doing, recognizing that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. There are some who turn their backs, and there are some that go like this. He touched me, God. And when we believe, everything like it did for this man born blind changes. Where once we were blind, now we see. Where once we groped in the darkness, now we grasp life firmly, steadily, meaningfully, eternally. For the light of the world has become ours by faith. In Him forever. Amen.